Welcome to Kodachi for Three, a bi-weekly podcast where three friends and passionate players discuss the world of Wraith. If you're looking for flesh and blood content, we've got it. Focusing on competitive play, community building, and yes, going off on plenty of tangents. From our favorite casual builds to the market, nothing is off limits. So sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for Kodachi for Three. All right, everybody, welcome to Kodachi for Three. We are your hosts. I'm Adam Roach. I'm Drayton Gans. And I'm bad at this game. That's what I, I learned over the weekend. Man, I'm Shay. All right, Shay Ramsey <laughs> telling the... Man, I don't even want to say hard truths here because that seems mean. You know, we gotta we have to like look inward and find the truth All right. before we can get better. And I just need to learn to count. Getting introspective. You know, you can tell people about your hardships during the, uh, the meta recap that we're going to do here. Yeah. I mean... So let's... Uh, not to pick Let's... on you, Shay, but you did say cast one that you linked yourself with stronger players than yourself and made podcasts with them. So I, I yeah. guess you're just keeping up with tradition, if that's what you're saying. I, I'm the Goldo of our Ginyu Force. I just have one weird little gimmick I do, and I'm probably dying first. Yeah, hold your breath. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> one random reference out of the way. Yeah. Hey, we hit a tangent before our featured card this time. Yeah, you know. I'm on the ball today. <laughs> All right. Speaking of that featured card, uh, this week we have chosen Pummel. Uh, I chose Pummel this week just because we're starting to see it in quite a few meta decks recently uh, with the resurgence of some Bravo and some Prism. Uh, so Pummel uh, allows you to choose one. A target club or hammer attack gains plus four, three, or two, depending on its pitch color. Uh, power or a target attack action card with a cost two or greater gains for three or two depending on its pitch color and if it hits the defending hero discards a card the card has a defense or block value of two and it costs two resources to play and has absolutely no flavor text but has a beautiful picture of a giant club so um, what do we think what's it do um, I mean, this I... card, like many attack reactions, the primary thing is like getting through hit effects. This one has the added benefit of increasing the devastation of those hit effects whenever it does hit. Um, I'm thinking of, in particular, Erudition turns where they pummel on top of mm -hmm. it and get both the Erudition trigger as well as the discard trigger. Um, on its own, it also has the beautiful benefit of turn disruption. So you, your opponent might be like, I'm not going to block because I have a plan. Now you've you've changed their plan. They can no longer go with the plan they had in mind because you have disrupted that. Um, and even if they are getting the choice, it still can be very difficult to formulate your hand around now missing that random card. Well, not random, but you know what I'm saying. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, and I... Actually, you think the blue one has a uh, okay amount of value, depending on how you're structuring your Bravo decks, like kind of pitch pool. That little bit of flex you have, where in like an odd turn where you could, you know, make Anathos like an eight or something, or even swing with one of your weaker attacks and potentially get a crush effect and a discard on top. It just kind of you got to be able to pressure a bit more with bravos here lately and i can see that kind of a blue's a blue but this is a blue that has like a little secondary fun effect 
I mean, and I super like the yellow pummels and uh, a more aggressive prism build. Though I don't think that aura prisms are using it all that much, if I'm correct. I think sometimes they'll run it, but it's relatively rare. I mean, the card does only t- target attack actions and hammer or club, so of course it's a natural fit into heroes like Brute and Guardian. Uh, but like you said, it's not only limited to those heavy resource decks like Prism do use it pretty heavily. Um, I mean, my particular favorite play of this thing is the Anothos play, where mm-hmm. you have actually only pitched to swing Anothos for four. So I pitch a three-cost card to pay for it. I then attack react with Pummel, pitching another three-cost to pay for it. And now my four-strength Anothos card has actually gotten to 10 uh, if I've done a red pummel. So plus four for the pummel, plus two for the Anothos effect that gains plus two as long as I have two pitch cards with three cost or greater. Um, I mean, basically, it's something everybody needs to be aware of out of Bravo. If they're swinging at you for four with two cards in hand, um, it's still really hard to play around. No, I think that's really fair. Um, I do think that's more of kind of a cutesy play, if that makes sense. I mean... In, in my regard to the current meta, damage is just damage. Hit effects are really what's kind of separates um, your disruption style plays. Um, so getting that disrupt effect can be more important. I think if you are seeing this in Bravo, generally speaking, they're playing it more on the Anothos. I do think that is correct. Um, but I think the disruption of pulling a card out of hand is what really flavors this card is having access to that right it's not just the access to additional damage on things you're doing but also the threat of turn disruption for example if let's say you, you come in with an attack as bravo and you're like you know what i have pummel in hand so i'm just not going to dominate they might recognize that you're telegraphing that you're about to pummel and it might be a red pummel in hand which will get the crush effect if they block the exact amount but do they want to waste their whole hand to respect that or do they want to just suffer through I mean, they sure. still might be taking 10 or more damage and then still having to discard a card. Um, so I think those types of plays, the flexibility there, and you might not even have it. You might bluff it as a Bravo, and even that can have power in itself. Um, sometimes bluff plays win, win games. I'm not saying it's something you should always do because you'll get called on it, but I think it's something to consider. I mean, just because I've put you on a pummel doesn't necessarily mean that I can do much about that, right? Even if I do go ahead and choose to block it out this time, that just means you're not going to play it, right? So if mm-hmm. I overblock, you're just going to arsenal that pummel. Now I have to worry about it later, leaving me in the position of deciding when I take the pummel. Um, and from my perspective, pummel is also very great, like you said, for turn disruption against people like Chain, who honestly just don't want to block you. They want to sit there with a full four-card hand or five-card hand if they've got something in an arsenal, they want to eat that damage and swing back harder, whereas Pummel does punish that play mentality by saying, okay, now you've taken a bunch of damage, and I have blunted your turn. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe a bit weak to some of the control stuff, but not too bad. I mean, this is a card, just like all defense reactions, it's weaker to, or attack reactions, it's weaker to defense reactions. Um, so you're, yeah, you're making them burn it though like i don't know i mean that is the thing though they can if they are putting you on pummel they can block to it to the number wait for you to react and then react to you 
negating mm-hmm. its effect, which if they're a more control mid rangey style deck, that might be in their game plan to eat your um, disruption turns that way rather than eating them through having an off turn themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something they could do. Uh, There's I do a lot of decks that... that can't or won't do that, though. You know, that don't really run extreme defense reactions, basically, that are just on fate for scenes or, or sink below. For sure. Well, fine. Do it, I guess. Uh, yeah, not much more to say about Old Pummel. Swing it hard, swing it fast, but on to the next. So um, let's just talk a little bit about what we've been playing recently. What's what's everybody been doing for the past two weeks of Flesh and Blood? Well, I started by playing more Ninja, and then I read a bunch of rules manuals is what I did. Um, so you sound excited. I it, no, <laughs> it was not exciting. <laughs> uh, it, it was an experience. I will definitely say that. Um, so I played Katsu. Um, what was it? Two weeks ago now, um, in a road to nationals in Dallas. Um, I ended up going six and zero into the Swiss and made it to the top four. Where unfortunately I um, did end up losing finally for the day. Uh, but I did make my um, Nationals qualifier, so that is taken out now. And because of that, um, I was I was sent to the judge chair. No, I, I had volunteered already to do that for our local event. But I judged our local event, which prepping for that was a lot of reading. Um, there's a lot of rules for Flesh and Blood, for those of you who have not read all of those. Um, it's what, like a grand total, I think, eight different documents or something like that that i ended up reading for the event i mean as someone who has also taken the judge exam uh yes it's unpleasant you need to know the penalty guidelines you need to know the core rule set you need to know all of the pre-release documents of which at this point there are three Uh, and then i believe there's also the tournament structure guide and outline Uh, so that's that's what you've got going on there i think i guess that's six documents so let's see so there is the conference of rules there's the penalties guidelines there's the tournament guidelines um and then there's four um pre-releases oh, there's there's four pre-releases i'm an idiot yeah i forgot yeah. about crucible it's okay it's the lesser known set right um but yeah so i guess like seven i think there might be one we might be missing so but yeah it's it was a significant amount of reading um i also tried to keep up with the the other the recent posts they've been doing the road to nationals like um adjustment faqs they've been posting uh, Those have actually been really helpful. They have I think been. they're good for the uh, general fact, player base. In fact, we referenced one during our event because a player proposed a situation to me, and I was like, um, do you have the documentation to back this up? Because there's one aspect of this that I'm not clear on. And they were like, yes, and they pulled up one of those documents, and with that I was able to make the ruling really efficiently. So worth noting, if you are playing a deck and you know there is a weird rules interaction, but you're confident that that is how it works... Um, I would strongly recommend keeping that documentation on your person when you go to events, like on your phone or something like that. I know there's the no electronics rule, but I'm sure a judge, if you're like, hey, I can on my phone I can show you exactly where LSS has ruled on this. I mean, have that available because it will it will help back up your case if a judge is ruling not in your favor. Absolutely. I mean, I think the no electronics rule is more for we cannot track health on our phone just because exactly. we're trying to make sure the integrity of the game is there. Uh, and, I, and I think it's something that we'd be more than happy to see, meaning at, as a judge myself, if somebody popped up a ruling out on their phone and was like, hey, I want to call you over for this issue, here's the proof right here, man, I'm happy about that. 
we are we are good to go. I expect that I'd probably already know it, but just in case, like, it's helpful. I'm not going to take that personal at all. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there were a couple of things where I was like, I'm pretty sure this is how it works, but I want to take a minute to, like, double check on this one section of the rules because I know exactly where I need to go. You know, and that took all of, like, a couple of minutes. And then, you know, if, it, if I felt like it was subtracting from the amount of time for a player, then I just told them, like, hey, if you guys feel like you're needing a time extension, please just talk to me before the end of the round. And I'm you know more than likely to give you guys a time extension assuming we don't have any other issues um regarding time like right like and now if like one of them had been called for slow playing that might have changed that dynamic a little bit which is why i was like talk to me before the end of the round but it, we were able to manage it um i think the event ran pretty smoothly in my opinion yeah i mean i was a player in that one but i i think we'll uh move on to shay let him tell us how he did well, uh, let me tell you, uh, two weeks leading up to the Road to Nationals event, uh, I probably should have been practicing my Katsu deck more, uh -huh. but life got in the way, and I got to go to, I think, oh, one little kind of local practice we did, and then uh, I did a little local constructed like event, but did not have a mask on me, so I ended up playing my Prism deck, uh, did well with it when got second, but uh, turns out not the best like experience for you know prepping for your road to nationals event playing a different hero. So uh, you know, I went three and three for having essentially zero practice and not drilling the chain matchup at all. I feel pretty good with that because two of my losses were the chain players uh, in retrospect. Uh, they were both close. Uh, I kind of identified where I made my like misplays. Uh, one was a sideboarding mistake, and the other was a play mistake on a turn. I probably should have just defended out uh, because my counterpunch was middling at best. And I also lost to Dorinthia, and uh, the more I just, you know, I don't know. Dorinthia matchups are my kryptonite. I don't know why. Got a built-in practice partner for that one, even. And it, it, I don't know, man. So I, know, I come you, to you the event. My decks, me. my decks, like, do you want all red cards? I'm like, deck, please. We we, we talked, talked about, about this. this. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I we're still proud of you for three and three, especially since you uh, refused to practice the right deck. Yeah, you know, it's okay. Glad I didn't bring the prism deck. It would have got demolished. Ugh. I don't know. Prism's doing all right. Yeah, um, not mine. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it's more about how you play than what you play, um, which we can talk about more in our breakdown. We, we were going to do a meta breakdown, weren't we, guys? We are, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, oh, okay. So uh, I, I have had a lot going on with family and my home maintenance, uh, so that's been fun. So I have played less than I'd like, uh, but I have played in two Road to Nationals events recently. Uh, I played in the one in the Dallas area. I played in the Edmond one, uh, which Drayton was the judge for. So each of them about 50, 60 player events. I played Dorinthia in both with a list that I feel like is relatively unique to me, at least for Dorinthia as far as it goes. Uh, and I feel like I got decent results. I was the top Dorinthia player in both events, placing about 13th and 11th. Um, Though I have been using the majority of my practice time to get a feel for other current meta lists like Chain, uh, Bolton, and maybe a little bit more recently some Dash, though that has been post our event more than it has been prior to it. Not because I did not want to grind or practice my own Road to Nationals deck, but Dorinthia is a comfort zone and a home for me, so I feel like it's better for me to spend practice time 
on other decks so that I learn how they interact and how they play, what kind of tricks they might have. I mean, you can get a ton of knowledge playing other things. Um, I mean, I, whenever I was first starting out this game, I bounced around heroes. A lot of people were like, just just pick one and stick to it. But honestly, I think it served me a little bit better in the long run because I have a general understanding of how most of the heroes play. I think I yeah, play better. Yeah, where it's... Oh, go ahead, Adam. I was just going to say, I, I think I play a little bit better once I've played a hero, right? So, for example, I play better into Bravo after having attempted to play Bravo. It's not that grinding games into Bravo doesn't teach me some, but it's still different than me seeing the hands themselves, really thinking about how I'm going to sequence my cards, really thinking about how I'm going to do my interactions, my pitches, things of that nature. It's very different to see it as a pilot than to have it piloted into you. And, and I think I, I gain a lot of value to that. I know everybody's learning style is a bit different, but I think there's value there. I do. I 100% agree. Like uh, the matches I've come up against uh, with things I've got more than a passing familiarity with playing, like my Agrokatsu deck could take those apart. Maybe I should have practiced some more chain. Maybe I should have practiced chain. Maybe I should have jumped in the pilot seat for people getting reps. I've got the deck. We can we can still do it for you. Yeah. Say, if only you knew people who had chain cards that could, you know, let you practice with that. Ah, it's okay, guys. My road to national season's over. I had the one shot. Like, I'm in off season. I'm going to practice sealed. I got a calling coming here in October. That's fair. Drayton and I have two or three more to go, so. <laughs> We're halfway. And uh, with that thought being halfway, maybe we should move into what we're kind of calling our mid season meta breakdown here uh so i used some data here from our event from tower number nine and from fab dojo uh, which is an excellent site that i believe matt rogers or one of the one of matt rogers's friends has put together so i apologize if i cited the wrong person there uh, but they've all put together quite a bit of data and that allows us to see what is about 36 to 40 events worth of data uh, and then up to 60 events worth of data for win-losses, top eights, things of that nature. Uh, but we have full data, including hero breakdowns for about 40 events. And on the topic of this, I do recommend if you're going to a Road Nationals event or something, en encourage your TO to make that information from the event kind of available so that it actually can go into kind of these kind of data and statistics. Coming from like the Warhammer sphere, this was like a recent, you know, within the time of me jumping in playing of kind of a push from the community to start running like stats and stuff and getting kind of tournament organizers to put that information out in a way that's like conducive to like community statistical analysis. And since doing that, it did a lot for, you know, helping though both the 40k and Age of Sigmar communities because you go from it being everyone just spouting anecdotal evidence that something's a problem, for example, to having statistical things being like, hey, I think X is winning a bit too much, statistically. I think it's a good balance to strike. I mean, you don't want to have people come in, see what the meta is, and just automatically follow it. Uh, but at the same time, like you said, you don't want all those anecdotal, this is broken, this is bad, this is a problem, uh, because rarely is it such a problem, such a exacerbated case as people make it out to be. I mean, so, 
I was going to say on that, at the very minimum, please do get this information to LSS, because not only does it matter for the living legend tracking, which is our balancing mechanic for making sure that a hero doesn't become, you know, broken in, in the meta for too long, um, but also, you know, it's good data for them to be like, okay, maybe, you know, we, we didn't we didn't foresee this interaction with this type of hero, and so it's performing a little better than we expected. In the future, we need to be aware of these types of interactions when we're making heroes and making cards, right? So that, that's the type of stuff that they, as developers, want to get feedback on, because there's only so much playtesting they can do. Um, things always slip through the cracks. Yeah, 100%. Things get different once they get out into the wild. Yeah, yeah. but the numbers. All right, so a quick overview. Uh, the three most popular heroes... Or we'll go ahead and we'll actually go ahead and say the four most popular heroes right now are Chain, Katsu, Prism, and Bravo. Those four heroes represent over 60% of the meta. So you either need to join them or identify something that plays directly into that field at this point. Uh, those themselves, so Chain represents almost 20% of the meta. Uh, Katsu representing another 16, Prism 14, and Bravo 11. Then everything else drops below 10%, uh, with Dorinthia and Bolton at about 9 each. And then Dash at 7. Another thing that might be important to note here is that some of these heroes do have an advantage when it comes to their win-loss ratios. So heroes with the greatest advantage that I'm going to define them as is going to be a greater percent of top eight placings and or wins than that of their meta representation. So for example, uh, Chain makes up approximately 18% of the player base at events, but it makes up 25% of the top eights and 38% of the wins, uh, which means it's got a 7% top eight advantage and a 20% win advantage. Uh, Bravo has the second most uh, advantage here, a 4% top 8 advantage and an 8% win advantage, only being 11% of the meta, but 15% of the wins and 19% of, or sorry, 19% of the wins and 15% of the top 8s. There are a couple other heroes that have minor advantages, that being Katsu, Bolton, and Dorinthia, but those are minor at, you know, around 2 to 3%. So, real quick, what are your guys' thoughts on that so far? Pans out. Like, there were a lot of Chain, Katsu, Prism, and Bravo decks at our event. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's not a lot of these numbers that really shocked me going into the events. The, um, the There are some numbers that are a little higher than I expected, and some numbers that are a little lower than I expected. Um, the big one for me is Dorinthia. I expected it to be a little bit higher, but I attribute that mostly to some Dorinthias moving over to Bolton, um, just because uh, he's another he's a new flashy warrior, right? Um, you know, I think that that could be a big part of it. I mean, also Dorinthia was a strong meta pick during the skirmish season, so people moving off of Dorinthia to one of the like quote unquote more meta heroes um could just be a meta decision as well so that yeah. could be a meta defining thing rather than just a loyalty type thing i expected to see more dash like i felt like going into this last weekend dash is being like super hyped as like the next big thing that everyone's gonna jump over to i will say in the events that um i the one i played in in dallas and then the one we had i did feel like i saw a drastic increase in the amount of dash players 
um, from my first weekend. I saw very little. I think I saw only maybe one Dash player um, at that event. And then, like, I played several Dash players um, even at the one I played in and definitely saw many at our event while judging. So yeah. I think that number has been on the steady increase. Um, it is hard to, you know, in a single week, jump over to a new deck and expect to perform, perform well with it. So I think that we could be seeing, like, a slow shift there. Um, and the fact that the numbers are do look like they're going up, if memory serves correctly. Um, the I numbers for Dash are to it becoming a bigger part of the meta. Up. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you're 100% correct there uh, in your feelings for Dash. So if I were to segment this out week over week, uh, Dash has gone up each week uh, by about 2%. And so technically, if I were to only separate it this past week out, it's almost 10% Dash, even though we're sitting at about 7.42% Dash overall uh, for the Road to National season. So you are now a little bit more likely to see Dash than you were in the past. Uh, the other Makes thing, sense. the other thing we've seen grow quite a bit, actually. Uh, so Dash has grown, but we've also seen a fair amount of growth uh, out of Bravo. So I believe that is a response to Chain's dominance because Bravo seems to be the best deck played into Chain, or at least the highest win rate into Chain. That's definitely interesting. We still see more and more people migrate into Chain. But at this stage, Chain has the widest, widest margin of placings. So, for example, in our 52-player event, uh, a Chain player won, but a Chain player also got, like, second or third to last. Uh, they were on virtually the same deck. It's, it's incredibly strong. It's just not quite an auto-player deck, and it has a lot of new players trying to take advantage of the current player uh, power level. Absolutely, and to speak more to that, because um, you did an awesome job um, breaking down the data from our event. Um, you were the one who kind of took over that afterwards, um, because I did not have time as I'm starting my new job this week. Uh, but I, I do think it was really interesting to see how it looked like across the board. Like, you had almost every hero that was represented, for the most part, there were a few exceptions, but for the most part, almost every hero, played, there was one that placed very high, and there was one that placed very low. And I think that speaks to how, like, the thinking game behind Flesh and Blood is very important. It's less about what you're playing. There's not necessarily a deck that you can just pick up and be like, oh, yeah, this is just going to win because it's this deck. Um, it's more about how you operate and pilot said deck into the rest of the field. Um, we were even having a conversation about... Um, like how to define decks earlier today, Adam, and I was talking about like, oh, I feel like part of defining a deck is when does it want to win, but then each individual hero wins a different way, right? And so I think that people who are just like, oh, well, I'm used to playing aggro, so I'm just going to jump on chain because it feels aggro. Um, I mean, I, I, as someone who is currently playing aggro katsu, I feel like if I were to jump over to chain it, and even having practice chain into other people, it feels drastically different than agrokatsu and so i personally wouldn't even feel comfortable just jumping into it um, i think i could do okay but i wouldn't necessarily prefer to do that without yeah, man, practice chain's, chain's stressful to play like you got to pay off your student loans every turn it's just i mean i'm not personally a big fan of chain not because i don't think he is amazing because i completely believe that he is 
I think for me the issue is a chain-on-chain matchup feels a lot more lucky than I want it to be, meaning I think a chain-on-chain matchup pulls out a lot of the skill that we just talked about, uh, the benefit you get from repetitions, things of that nature. Uh, And that's not really something I'm looking to add into my play in Flesh and Blood. Um, Really one of the things that I think the data, our data, and the public data out there says like you, like you mentioned, Drayton, is that if you have played a hero for the last six months, no matter what that hero is, unless it's potentially Azalea or Kano, you should play that hero into Road to Nationals. You're likely to do better than you would if you were to pick up, you know, the last person's number one deck, Matt Rogers' dash deck, um, Brendan Patrick's chain deck, you know, any of these players that are relatively recognizable just picking up their deck won't net you a win. I mean, I, I will absolutely speak to that. Um, for, for example, um, in the Dallas tournament, I played several different dashes, and um, I happened to play one that was their meta's main dash player twice. And while I won both games, um, they were exceptionally close. And I would consider that to be a matchup that I think I actually caught to as Agrokatsu is favored in versus Dash, personally. I agree. 100%. But I agree. that being said, the game was close because of his player skill on Dash. Now, another player played in the same event, almost identical deck guaranteed, absolute dumpster fire. Like, I was in complete control the whole game. Um, so, uh, you know, but it's because they weren't seeing the exact same lines of play, right? And so... I could tell by the player playing it that they were a very skilled player, but they didn't know how to handle that particular matchup on dash. Like I could see the wheels turning up there, but they were missing some of the instruments to get everything running. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's something to be said to playing something that's in like your kind of wheelhouse. Cause like, I mean, I can, I feel comfortable with most any aggro deck in any game, but man, Give me a control deck, and I just I flounder. Be the most broken control deck you can think of, and I just like ah. Yeah, I'm typically a mid range or a flex player. Um, I know that doesn't necessarily apply to every situation, but I do typically like the ability to drop in and out of aggro and control type playstyles, and so all in on one or the other, I tend to falter a bit. Meaning I'll overblock in an aggro deck, and I will un- underblock in a control deck sometimes, and that that costs me games. I know that's overly simplistic, but it's definitely true. Um, let me see. Other general thoughts. I don't want to move along too fast, but I feel like at this stage, you can basically 100% gamble on or drop your null rune outside maybe a one of for chain. Even mm-hmm. for aggressive decks, you might even just drop it all together because Kano is at 1.5% of the meta. Its win rate is abysmal. Um, no, I will say on the topic of null rune in an aggro, like, if you're running kind of aggro, uh, I think actually not slotting my one piece of Null Rune in one of my chain matchups uh, because my previous one I felt it was irrelevant uh, probably cost me the game. Uh, I probably took five plus damage from Arcane over the course of that game. And when it came down to being able to, you know, probably one or two health if I would have been able to have. I probably would have won that game on the crackback. So, 
Yeah, I think I don't know. I think the one piece of null rune is still worth it in that chain matchup, no matter how aggro you are. I so, usually agree, but some of the aggro katsus can put out, you know, twenty plus damage on their third turn, and if you're just racing, you're just racing, right? Well, and another thing to consider. This is something that I learned between my two road to nationals that I can speak to because I did. I did suffer verse chain in my first road to nationals, as we discussed in our last podcast. And in my in our second um, road to nationals that I went to, um, my last two rounds in Swiss were actually verse chain, and I won both those games. Um, but what I started recognizing differently was, okay, yes, this is a race, but there are going to be turns where I'm going to see, okay, this turn is weak for them. I can still have a strong turn, but if I block this attack, their turn gets shut down, right? And me recognizing, like, yes, I could have a bigger turn if I let them hit me and I do the whole race strategy. But just, again, learning better how to block and what to block um, saved me more health in the long run, which let me get away with not having the null rune, right? Because now I can take that extra five arcane damage because I saved myself five physical damage earlier when I chose to block as opposed to not to block. And again, I'm not saying do this on every hand as an aggro katsu. I'm just saying, like, finding those those intervals where it's like, okay, it's better to block here, or it's better to hold and just take it. Um, I mean, that's really what's going to define those matchups, especially at those upper tables. I agree, and honestly, I think since we all have a little bit different deck specialties, at some point it might be worth doing an episode of our Identifying the Pivot. Um, basically identifying that crucial block, that crucial pivot into pure aggro from a, even from a control standpoint right when to make your plays and when to step back from your plays and make those blocks what are the core or big pivot turns for each deck i think i think that would be worth going through for sure and it's the turn that you get four blue cards and you cry i mean it's it, i would love to do that <laughs> i feel like it's so <laughs> tricky to do though um just because it, for me personally, in my perspective, it depends so much on what else is going on in the game, right? So, depends. Like, for instance, if I'm looking at a hand situation, and I'm like, man, this hand is garbage, but we're at like only a few more life left. I'm probably gonna hang on to it. Like my life depends on if I can afford to, because I can still push that pressure through even with an all blue hand if I have snapdragons up and things like that. Like the situation is defined by where we are in the game and what I still have available tool-wise to me. On the other hand, if it's turn one and I'm verse chain, and I'm like, I got all blues in hand, I'm blocking like a crazy man just because I'm not doing anything with my turn, right? Um, sure. But that being said, it, it really, it's so much is defined by the, the ebb and flow of this game, and that's what I find like really fascinating about it, is that find, finding those pivot points, it's kind of almost an art less than a science in a weird way. And that's where we have these players who are consistently just doing well even on different decks um i think matt rogers didn't he he just won with chain um he's won with chain and dash so yeah, far, he's won yes. with two different heroes um in a very short span of time but it just shows like you know he had, understands that ebb and flow really really well i agree i mean a lot of that is going to come down to feel uh, I do believe there's some things you can identify and some things you can pull out as a, hey, here's a good cue or here's a good identifier, Absolutely. but we can never break it down to, meaning we can never take the essence of a good player, the reactions of a good player, and talk about it to the point that we could convey that to another player. It'll never be 100% effective. 
as much as yeah. I wish I could. Of course, then everybody just start beating me. So, yeah. <laughs> Up in the right. downside. Yeah. Okay, guys. Uh, so we'll do our final little topic here. I think we've talked a little bit over half an hour so far. Let's move into some quick things over community building. I've been getting a few messages about this on Facebook and a few external communities where people have kind of driven down and seen our local meta, participated in some of our store events, or just heard about our store because of some of those events and asking me about how we started our community, how we felt about our community, and if there's anything they can do that we felt like that would help them replicate that experience. So I thought it'd be fun to do a quick discussion. We won't go too in depth today, but depending on the response and feedback we get from this, we might do a, a deeper dive on that in the future as well. Uh, so for our listeners, it'll kind of work by us rotating through. Uh, we'll just talk a little bit about a core item that we think helps the community. think well i'll we go are I'll, gonna i'll go ahead and start, start off it. with drayton yes yeah so um it's really important um that you start with making sure you have a consistent time and place to play um so if if you have people just walking by who are seeing you play the game and get interested and want to ask you questions and like that they might not sit down and play with you that day. They might not get fully invested. But if you know, it sometimes will just be a thing where like, like, oh man, that kind of did look cool, or oh hey, I wonder, you know, I'm bored and it's that same time, and I can go to that place. Maybe I'll go check out that game now. And if you're being really consistent with your times and your places, I think you're you're much more successful in building that community. Just because people are going to be able to come back. Um, they're not going to have you having to message you and be like, hey, when are you doing Flesh and Blood this week? Uh, that's not to say don't have multiple stores. That's not to say don't have multiple events or anything like that. But just making sure that whenever you can, try and be as consistent as humanly possible. Because um, it really does pay off for people who don't know your actual schedule. For sure. And it also, like, even if you don't have, like, a consistent, like, say, place or something, if you have someone that seems interested, like, kind of make sure you have some kind of, you know, be it a Discord, be it a Facebook group, be it whatever, that's kind of like a hub for your local community. Uh, be sure that you're, like, you're on there and, you know, check and see if, like, your state, your province, whatever, has, like, a kind of larger level group as well. And, like, be sure to post about your events there and stuff. It helps kind of cast, cast a wider net, get more people, everything. Yeah, I agree. It's good for the community to see where all is available. I mean, I've built communities out of a Dunkin' Donuts, out of a coffee shop. It's great to have a local gaming store, and we're going to talk about that in the future as well. But as long as your players have a place they can come to you regularly, every week, participate in your events, play with you find you that's that's the core that's that's really important consistency is key 100 percent. yep so the next thing is trading with a community mindset and paying it forward so you know a lot of people like you know we're all used to tcg player and looking at prices that way and you definitely want to not like you want to your cards are valuable like they just are so i'm not saying that like hey just give away free things but at the same time if you're if you see there's a newer player and they're looking for a card and you can afford to like take a five dollar difference on a trade with them or even more than that sometimes or you're you're like 
hey man, I, 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 you know you want to play this in this event, and you've been proxying this card, you just can't afford it. Um, I have an extra one laying around, and I trust you to borrow it this event. I'm not saying to go overboard with these types of things, but you know, have that community mindset with your collection, and be willing to help promote your community. Um, like there have been times where somebody's been like, hey, I'm wanting to try out Ninja, but I'm, I'm missing a few key comments, and I've just honestly given them the comments and I've just been like hey man I don't want any money for this just pay it forward ne you know in the future when you have someone coming to you saying like hey I'm really curious about brute and I just need a few comments help them out too you know that that pay it forward mindset can really yeah. help um, help your community show that it's like a friendly and like we're not here to just like gouge you for money and things like that and that we're really here to like help each other and grow as a group it does really yeah. set a tone I mean, I, I've noticed, so we've ran events for quite a while at this stage when we run draft events, when we run sealed events. It's extraordinarily common for the majority of the players to hand their sealed pulls, as long as they didn't need the cards, to the newest player in the room, to the guy who hasn't yet been able to buy boxes, uh, to the person who didn't necessarily get a bunch of prize packs there or something of that nature. I see... 60% of our community just hand those cards to a new player if they're needed. And again, I'm not suggesting that to build a community, everybody has to give away cards, just like you said, Drayton. Um, but it's also it's also just a much friendlier mentality if we go into a trade or we go into an event and heck, even if I'm just giving you a couple of cards or a couple of commons, then if I'm like, all right, I'm trading this Majestic for your Majestic, but you're 20 cents off, so I'm going to need you to give me one shiny common to make this up. Like, it sets a completely different tone. Also, I'm 100%. Like, there comes a point where you've cracked, like, a case, and you're like, I don't need any more of the bolt cards, like, commons, and more, you know, occurring rares. Just, like, you drafted, just toss those to the new player. I mean, I, it, you're I, just going to save clutter at that point. I know our viewers can't see it, or our listeners can't see it, but I'm sitting here with five boxes that'll hold about 5,000 cards each that I need to organize, and I have given a lot of cards away. You don't need that many commons. Yeah, no, I have an entire, uh, what used to be my Warhammer table right now is me sorting all of my stuff, and I also have just been throwing my stuff from most sealed events to new players oh absolutely and you know that, that's just the thing is that i mean a lot of these comments a lot of these rares i mean yeah they are valuable if you like put the nuts like the numbers all together but at the same time for the most of us they're just going to collect dust so i'm not saying you know give away all your staples i'm not saying you know give away everything but you know have that community mindset and and do pay it forward and because if, especially if you're willing to be like hey man i'm going to help you out here they're way more likely to do that for the next person um you know small tangent here but there was like a whole um like community like experiment where there was like a taco truck and they were like hey free tacos but if you want to um you can pay it forward and then that pays for the tacos for the next people so we can keep doing this and almost everybody who heard that that like the tacos were free but they had the option to pay it forward paid it forward Almost every person did. They were even paying more than the tacos were worth. I mean, if you want to look at it from an investment point of view, you're investing in new players in your community that creates a sustainable like community. Absolutely. Agreed.
yeah, there won't be any more sealed pulls or draft pulls if nobody's coming out to play with you. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. it's key to retain players first. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, a sustainable community and, you know, needing kind of a hub for which people to meet, that leads us to number six, which is, hey, if you're playing at a local game store, buy product. Just buy, buy some product from that store. Uh, yeah, you can probably get a better deal online. And hey, like, no one's going to knock you for buying some singles and stuff. But, you know, maybe buy some of your stuff from your local shop. Like, you know, I think if there's like a $10 difference between online and buying like in your LGS, well... To me, that's negligible because, cool, I'll pay the extra $10 to my LGS. That way, you know, there's that place I can play the game. And, oh no, I spent like 10 extra dollars. But I didn't have to wait for shipping. So there's something with that and the realm of instant gratification. I think that's very fair. And, you know, I want to combine this with what I call store buy-in because what you're talking about really incentivizes the stores to have that buy-in, right? So I think it goes without saying, but like we've said, you need a place to play uh, and it really can put you in a good start. I don't just mean a store that purchases and sells you product, but a store that truly engages in their community. Store buy-in is basically, they allocate you space and time, they give you a scheduled night, they dedicate space, they supply you with armory events, sometimes extra supplementary uh, prizing. They actually communicate that with prospective players. So somebody comes in and buys a pack. They say, oh, by the way, we've got players on Tuesday nights. Why don't you come join them? Um, Product that supports the local community as well, right? So if your store is bought in and you are shopping there, Flesh and Blood has been very successful in their early releases to the point that product has sold well above its MSRP. But stores that have actually committed to keeping product into their local meta and who have been selling at or around MSRP instead of just flipping it online for a profit, that kind of a store will keep the community. That kind of a store will help you build the community so much more. And honestly, just having a store that believes in the game, I don't mean believe it'll survive forever, but believe in the game being more than a profitable product, something worth building around, you know, a positive community, a, a fun game, something that actually they can they can really build something around in their store. Well, yeah. And another point on the support your store. I mean, some people are like, well, you know, they're raising the prices, so I don't want to support them. Well, that's a self fulfilling prophecy. If they're buying the product and then they're not selling it efficiently, of course they're going to sell it at a higher margin because they want to actually make a profit. But if they know, hey, if I buy these boxes and I always sell them MSRP, I'm always going to have people coming in and buying them consistently. They're going to be a lot more likely to continue to sell them at those prices because they are still turning a profit, right? It might be a smaller profit, but in the long term, it actually is more profitable profitable for them to have that small loss up front because long term, they're going to have more sales growth, right? So yes, it can be frustrating up front to support stores especially if they have like you know a $30 surplus charge on some of these things um, but remember they do have to keep the doors open they do have to pay for the AC and so you know it can be frustrating at times but ultimately the more you support them the more likely they are to support you back yep agreed and it also help it also helps the more like unlimited product that kind of flows through a store does also help with uh, 
I believe things like being able to get like pre-releases and stuff like that. If I'm correct on that. It absolutely so. does. As our local TO, uh, we are allocated based on product that we purchased as well as events that we've ran. So pre-releases are based off of both purchase product and uh, turnout for previous events. So if you've been running events and you've had turnout as well as purchase a fair amount of product from distributors, you're more likely to get a pre-release, more likely to get things like road to nationals, skirmishes, etc. as we move forward into the seasons. So it's, it's like you said, somewhat self-fulfilling. Uh, those things get the ball rolling. Yeah, man. Two birds, one stone. Have some draft and sealed events at your local store. Kind of get them to, you know, if you can get them to kind of support that format, helps you bring new players in, helps product move through the store, helps the store profit margins. Like, everyone's a winner when you draft. Unless you're drafting like Arcane Rising, and then actually everyone, in fact, is losing in that one because that is just pain. Except yeah, for the guy who pulled a foil CNC. Or yeah. an Arcanite Skullcap. That's true. Those are good nights. Not fun for playing, in my opinion, but. <laughs> i'm not uh, gonna complain so yeah i guess we'll uh the next thing on our list is hey if you're starting a new uh you know community and stuff uh you know don't you know teach don't beat so if there's a new player and they're trying to learn the game don't use a bunch of gotcha plays and like crush their soul uh because that's not conducive to making people want to keep playing a game if you just set and you know grind their self-worth into nothing you know instead there's something to coaching an opponent if opponent's a new player if they're new to the game let them know if they're making a mistake or let them know if like hey so because i'm doing something like this i'm telegraphing play x oh hey you should you know instead of doing the sequence of play you just did why don't you do it like so and that's a more efficient kind of way to go about this. Just little things like that help kind of get people over that hurdle of learning the game. And, you know, we'll get them faster to the point where they're a, you know, worthwhile, you know, opponent for testing and everything as well. Like, just kind of lower the threshold for people to get into the game as far as learning. And it's a win-win situation. Coming from L5R, which was notoriously a brain-melting game to teach, you know, it's okay with people in their first few games to be a little, you know, a little hand-holdy. You can guide them, like, help them learn. Yeah, I think it's... You know, you, your, your self-esteem can handle not crushing the new player a time or two, I think. Absolutely. I agree. Um, it's also important to remember everybody's bad at one stage, right? I know some people get frustrated with new players and all the triggers or things that they miss, but people get, people are bad to start with. It's important to know that. Yeah. Sometimes like halfway through your first event, you learn that the arsenal's a thing. It's fine. It was, it was a fun event, guys. I liked it. I mean, like that there, I mean, there, there were times where I didn't understand how a lot of the things in this game work. Like, for instance, having to pay for defense reactions and things like that when I first started playing. I was like, oh, I still have to pay for these? That would explain why there's a cost associated with them. Um, or that you can't use defense reactions on arcane damage. Uh, there was a time where I did not know that as well. Uh, and, you know, especially with like things like arcane damage, you know, for instance, whenever I was playing a lot more Viscerai, every time I sat down across from an opponent, if they flipped 
if they were putting out their equipment, I didn't see any Nolroon, you know, I made sure we had a conversation about that. Could I have absolutely destroyed them by not letting them have Nolroon? Absolutely. But, I mean, it wouldn't have been fun for me. It wouldn't have been fun for them. Um, there's no real winners in that scenario. Um, now, this is very different if, well, you know, that happens at, like, a Road to Nationals event, right? But we're talking more about the community building aspect. I'm not saying coach your opponents through a big tournament, but at the same time, if it's just a casual night, or let's say it's your casual three-round tournament that's only for three experience in that round, like, consider it. I mean, I've honestly coached my opponents in a tournament to beating me before, but it was also a tournament that I didn't have any stake in. I had, It was for a couple packs that I didn't need, and at the end of the day, I still don't regret it. Yeah, local game night. Turns out it's conducive. If it's a you know, learn-to-play tournament, is to help people learn to play. But, you know. <laughs> also, point people that are interested in playing the game to, like, content creators and stuff that have, like, learn-to-play videos, because there actually are several pretty decent learn-to-play videos for Flesh and Blood, and as someone who came from several different games that did not have good learn-to-play videos... Uh, that's a great resource to help people kind of accelerate learning the game because people don't like to read rule books. Yeah, focus on those that pop up card images and things of that nature as well. Uh, it's really nice to be able to read the cards while people are talking about them and while they're actually utilizing them. I'm not saying it's not great to have audio medium or some of the quick play games that are up on YouTube, uh, but the more information the better there. Actually, the uh, LSS official video isn't half bad. Yeah, LSS, The Professor, and all of the Devastation stuff, which is also LSS or Fab Official, uh, great at teaching the game, great at getting you some examples of play. So I think this yeah. feeds really well into casual and welcoming environment. Basically, it's the same thing. No gotcha plays, uh, but it's a little bit more an expanded version of this, right? So I want to elaborate a little bit more. All players should just be welcoming to others and accepting of all skill levels and goals, right? So you should foster that within your community. You'll inevitably have some competitive players who want to chase prizes, ascend to above armory level, compete in skirmishes, nationals, pro quest level events. But local communities do live and die on your bread and butter players who just like to come out, make friends, enjoy a game. Uh, you want to provide them some positive avenues for feedback loops, right? Make it to where it's not just the winners who come, take home all the cool and interesting prizes every week, and they get nothing. So this could be through leagues, random giveaways, raffles, community champion incentives. So, hey, you've, you've taught five new players the game. You've brought new players into the community. Uh, that deserves an award. And then just to listen to feedback from your players. So if you're the organizer, if you're the point person, make sure you're listening to what they actually want, what they actually are interested in, and help, you know, guide them to that. Yeah, coming from, uh, in college I taught, like, I was the president of our chess and games club, so I have a lot of experience of, like, uh, the Warhammer turn is a whack for win-at-all-cost style players. Uh, you know, if you have a new person coming in, if you're part of your community, you know your people that it's like, you know what? Hi, new person. We're just going to steer you over here. You get Once you get to a like, moderate level, then we feel safe letting you come into, you know, interacting with the, that person in like a game situation. You know, you don't want the 
the person is like, I'm here to play Cards Against Humanity, get wrapped into, you know, a three-hour Euro game where they proceed to be ground into dust. Um, you know, that's... Uh, turns out they don't come back after that. And, you know, that kind of is applicable to flesh and blood. If you bring the, you know, person who's like, oh, boy, howdy, it's my first game, I can't wait to... and they have no idea what's going on. They're just told that they're just getting beat, beat, beat. And then, you know, they get gloated at to their face. Uh, you know, that's part of the reason uh, I stopped uh, wanting to play the, uh, you know, Dragon Ball Z card game from Panini. Yeah, that was a toxic experience. I mean, honestly, the part, part of the community aspect is part of why I stopped playing Magic as early as I did. Um because there was a local game shop that I enjoyed going to for Friday Night Magic. Um, they folded due to financial issues, and then the next game store I went to was just overall a more toxic environment, and I didn't enjoy playing there, and so I just stopped playing the game in general. Um, that's not to say that like Magic players or communities in general are inherently toxic, but it, it is one of those things that it can be very off-putting when you have communities that are more focused on just the win than the com the people involved, right? Um, and a personal example that I can give was, so this last weekend, obviously I judged our Saturday event, but we had a small event on Sunday. There were only, I think, five players at this event um, that we were playing. It was Classic Instructed. And I, I hadn't gotten to play in a while, so I really wanted to play my Katsu, which is a very strong deck and a lot of the players at this event were on the weaker end um but we have one player there like one of the prizes was the cold foil um urser that was being given away with the armory kits right now and one of the players there they really wanted that card they were gunning for it hard well i ended up winning the event and so that prize probably should have gone to me but I chose a lesser prize over that because I knew how much they wanted it, right? I knew, like, there was probably a financial loss that I might be taking here, but I also didn't care. And I even told them, like, the thing is, like, hey, if it ends up being, like, that's the overall prize, let's talk about it and let's work out something where we're both we're both happy. I'm, I'll, I'm not going to, like, gouge you and, like, I'll trade down to you. We'll, we'll figure out something to make sure you get this card, right? Because I knew it was something that they really wanted. Um... And I, wa and I wanted them to get that because I knew how excited they were going to be to get that card because they were trying to cold foil out their kind of chain stuff and things like that. They were really excited to be playing the card and playing that deck. Me, it was going to sit in a binder for a really long time and possibly go on eBay. So I'd rather the card get played and someone be really excited to be playing it than to just hoard it and, you know, kind of be a dragon about it, realistically. Yeah. Also, like, you know... If it's a casual event like and you can tell you're playing against a newer player or the person's like oh this is like my third game it's okay to pull a couple of punches it's okay not to play the 100 percent optimal turn and you know deal them like 20 damage you can kind of string it along you can stay in control but you can let them feel like they have the illusion of a chance and that also does a lot uh with you know l5r back in the day teaching i would pull punches all the time like i didn't need to you know grind my opponent into a fine paste you can you know it's like you're like ah yeah we all you're it's super close like i'm not gonna let you know that 
I'm only playing like half the things I have in my hand. Like, it's okay to do that. Like, you don't, like, don't be patronizing about it, but like, you know. I was going to say, it's a fine line. You don't want to patronize, but at the very least, being lax at enforcement of the structure well, sometimes, like take backs, forgotten triggers, margins of forgiveness. Reminding them of triggers, even. Oh, yeah. Or explaining the action windows to them mm-hmm. so that it's clear and they understand that now. It's like, ah, so actually, big thing. Sorry to interrupt you guys. When you're teaching a new player, just ver- verbalize your windows. Just verbalize the windows. Yeah. You know, then that just makes the world a better place for us all. Bolton can react to give go again here. Would you like to do it? If it doesn't look like they're going to, things of that nature. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, in, in a weird way, that's also kind of helping you, like watching your opponent's triggers and things like that is actually helping you as a competitive player. Because remember, you are responsible for those things when you are at a Rose Nationals event. If there is a big missed trigger, both players will get a penalty for that. Um, so it, it, it actually will help you as a player to be cognizant of both what you're doing and what they're doing. It will train your brain effectively. And then, you know, speaking of new players and introductory events and everything, hey, maybe run some introductory events. Uh, you know, I know everyone has this, like, shake their fist, get off my lawn about Blitz, but Blitz is great for casual, newer players who are wanting to just kind of get into the game. It plays quicker. You can do it on, like, a weeknight. Same thing with, like, Draft and Sealed. Those are quicker events that also help new players build their collections you know everything doesn't have to be you know standard you know classic constructed everything you can have a little more i I agree yeah i mean you want to tailor your events to the time right so i think a lot of people are probably doing classic constructed right now it is the competitive season but i think ensuring you have a balance of events is important stores technically generate greater revenue by doing all limited but many players can't sustain that 15 to 25 every week just to play especially if they're new maybe they're not bought in yet maybe they're not convinced it's worth it i mean i kind of suggest a balance of classic constructed blitz constructed sub super even of both of those things for new players draft sealed hit it all and the more casual events should probably be focused around those sealed and those budget events Uh, potentially even having decks available for players in the casual blitz. Um, Consider new player discounts at some of the sealed stuff. We're actually considering doing that locally here as the summer season ends and as more people go start playing again. Uh, We're hoping that we're going to do a $5 discount potentially for a lot of our sealed stuff. If you've never been there before, if you've not played before, get you a little bit of cards, hopefully have a positive experience and come out. Also, uh, we did it with uh, when Monarch launched locally. Uh, just a starter deck event. Um, that's like the lowest like bar to kind of get a new player in. They get a full Blitz deck. Uh, you know, it's relatively cheap buy-in. And I don't know. I had fun with it, but no, absolutely. Um, like lowering that barrier to entry is super important. Um, and then our, our last thing is if you want to grow a community, 
you gotta take the steps as a leader to grow the community. Turns out it doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. You actually have to be proactive and be a leader. So community leadership is incredibly important. Um, I'm gonna give a big shout out to Adam here because he is our main point man for community leadership and he does an absolute fantastic job. He is always asking people how do they feel about things. He's always checking in with like the stores and players both to make sure that everybody's getting out of the community what they need to get out of it. And he's just a great guy when it comes to introducing players to the game in my opinion. And I feel loved. I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, to. I agree that you just need a, a one player that drives forward the community. Uh, mm. Having more is better. You know, you guys both help support our community a ton. Drayton, like you said, you volunteered to judge that event so that I could play in it. It's big to have multiple people, but having one person at least that's willing to set aside time, organize events, push stores to carry product, teach players early on, basically a player with passion for the game. This player's likely to do a lot of your demos sit up even when there's not a player base and likely to be one of your first tos and judges who's going to need to learn all those rules which we both said it's not that exciting no it's 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 really not and like you know i i have often said like i love my job as a teacher but i hate all the extra admin stuff i have to do and you know for this community some of that is just admin book work like i mean it's it's keeping track of things. It's making sure you're communicating with LSS, with the local game stores, with players even, and making sure that they're taken care of. And that can take a lot of time and effort. Um, even just like responding to Facebook messages and you know, rules questions and being involved that way. Um, it can eat up a lot of time. Like, um, for instance, like I, I reworked our local Discord to make sure that we could have more efficient role management and things like that. Um, that took me a few days. It took me like a whole weekend to kind of like learn that system and then get it set up and make sure I was happy with it. So, you know, it these types of things do take time, but they are worth doing and they will make a big difference to your community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, that's kind of the last one we had today. So I hope everybody's enjoyed that. Before we do our outros, either you guys have a shout out you'd like to give. Um, nothing that we're not going to cover in a bit here, so. Actually, slightly off topic, but, uh, you know, uh, my good folks over at Pinebox Entertainment just launched the, their Kickstarter for their Doomtown uh, Weird West edition. Uh, if you're a fan of overly complex, like, kind of fiddly card games, uh, I have a soft spot for Doomtown. It's all based on Deadlands, and you play Poker Hands, and it was a delight. Uh, go sh give them some love. Um, they're old L5R folks, so I have a soft spot for the game. And I mean, they have a whole kung fu faction, and I love it. It's cowboys, and then you got kung fu cowboys. Well, even I had never heard of this, so you have oh, done an effective PSA here. Yeah, no, I I thought I'd give it a shout out. Their Kickstarter went like live. They're blowing through all their stretch goals, so I'm super excited for them. Very nice. Congratulations. All right, guys, I'm going to go with thanks for listening here. We have been Kadachi for three. Over the past few weeks, we've seen pretty solid growth here, and I just want to say we really appreciate those of you who are turning in. 
giving us a listen and giving us a little bit of support. We're still working our way towards about 100 likes and followers on Facebook uh, for our Welcome to Wraith box giveaway and are keeping track of those entries now. So with that in mind, please like and share us on Facebook. And if you're a listener on Apple Podcasts, reviews and rankings do a ton for our visibility and for our growth. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Kadachi for 3 The podcast is sponsored by Edmund Unplugged in Oklahoma and is the home of Arc Knights Unplugged Flesh and Blood team. They're an amazing store. They support us. They support the Flesh and Blood community. And I always recommend you give them a shout out and a check if you're ever in the area. Yeah, they gave me my shirt. <laughs> I didn't forget. Well, I did, but it's okay. We fixed it. I had the shirt on for the Road to Nationals. And we are all proud. Thanks yeah. for listening, guys. We have been Kadachi for three. Take it easy. See ya. Thanks for listening and being a part of the Flesh and Blood community. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please share us, leave us a like, or a review. If you want to engage with us directly, please find us on Facebook at Kadachi43. And remember, we are available for download on all major podcast providers. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you again in two weeks. Until then, enjoy playing Flesh and Blood.